Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to Story Cuppings, where I am taking a stroll on down to the local library while I drive because it's freezing cold out <clears throat> to uh, take a sip from whatever's sitting on the new release shelf today. And today we have The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafik if I am mispronouncing that name, and chances are I am. That's my track record. Uh, I apologize uh, because I am all about having names pronounced correctly to give them their due respect. Now, it seems that this book is in Reese's Book Club. Bully for you, Reese. Um, I'm not familiar with the premise of this book, but it's got all sorts of praise for the island of missing trees on the back so something must have worked out in here i have no idea what i'm getting into this is a cold reaction uh to whatever lies ahead all i see on the front was something about a wise novel of love and grief roots and branches and then the library tag covers it but hey um I saw this was also on a list, that I recall correctly, in the UK from their uh, reading agency about uplifting books. So mayhaps this is a kind of book that is good for one to experience for healing. We will see. Let's move on forward here and find chapter one because i am all about first chapter reviews in these here parts oh, where is it there we go okay we're actually on chapter one island once upon a memory at the far end of the mediterranean sea there lay an island so beautiful and blue that the many travelers, pilgrims, crusaders, and merchants who fell in love with it either wanted to never to leave or trying to tow it with hemp ropes all the way back to their own countries. Legends, perhaps. But legends are there to tell us what history has forgotten. It has been many years since I fled that place on board a plane inside a suitcase made of soft black leather never to return i have since adopted another land england where i have grown and thrived but not a day single day passes that i do not yearn to be back home motherland it must be still there where i left it rising and sinking with the waves that break and foam upon its rugged coastline at the crossroads of three continents Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Levant, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, that vast and impenetrable region vanished entirely from the maps of today. A map is a two-dimensional representation with arbitrary symbols and incised lines that decide who is to be our enemy and who is to be our friend, who deserves our love and who deserves our hatred, and who our sheer indifference. Cartography is another name for stories told by winners, for stories told by those who have lost. There isn't one. 
there's a section break here. So there's more than one reason I'm pausing. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. There, there, there's something to be said for entering a story through the philosophical outlook of your protagonist. I mean, for some, it's edifying. But I, I obviously, by my reaction here, I'm not really sure what to feel. It's the prose is beautiful. I, I'm, 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 I, the language here is lovely to listen to. And I do feel a sense of, I do feel that sense of mourning what you cannot return to. I think we all feel that way. And I can see, I can already see why there is this um, note on the cover about this being a story of grief. And maybe it's just because this is a time of year where I'm always feeling a bit of grief. Um, my father passed away this time of year, seven years, eight years ago now. And so perhaps there is something of a trigger here for me and for maybe anyone who has lost something precious to them. But then again, this is a book that is meant to be a catalyst of a healing process. Maybe you could call it that. So we have to start somewhere and often that somewhere is in the rawest moment. And there is something very raw about feeling that absence. Let's get back into the story. Here's how I remember it. Golden beaches, turquoise waters, lucid skies. Every year, sea turtles would come ashore to lay their eggs in the powdery sand. The late afternoon wind brought along the scent of gardenia, cyclamen, cyclamen, lavender, honeysuckle. Branching ropes of wisteria climbed up whitewashed walls, aspiring to reach the clouds, hopeful in the way only dreamers are. When the night kissed your skin as it always did, you could smell the jasmine on its breath. The moon, here closer to earth, hung bright and gentle over the rooftops, casting a vivid glow on the narrow alleys and cobblestone streets. And yet, shadows found a way to creep through the light. Whispers of distrust and conspiracy rippled in the dark. For the island was riven into two pieces, the north and the south. A different language, a different script, a different memory prevailed in each. And when they prayed, the islanders, it was seldom to the same god. The capital was split by a partition which sliced right through it like a slash to the heart. Along the demarcation line, the frontier, 
were dilapidated houses riddled with bullet holes, empty courtyards scarred with gren grenade bursts, boarded stores gone to ruin, ornamented gates hanging at angles from broken hinges, luxury cars from another era rusting away under layers of dust. Roads were blocked by coils of barbed wire, piles of sandbags, barrels full of concrete, anti-tank ditches and watchtowers. Streets ended abruptly, like unfinished thoughts, unresolved feelings. It feels like we are painting a setting. And again, on the one hand, I love the prose and it's very lush, very sensory driven. And so we are fully engaged in this place, wherever it may be, this island. I think what may be unnerving me a little bit, and unnerving is not the right word, maybe unsettling a little, is the fact we have not really encountered, we have no people. There's no characters as of yet, apart from our protagonist, but this is pulling on a memory. And so even really the protagonist is not an active participant in whatever setting this may be. It's, it's reminding me a little bit of Milan Kundera, actually, now that I think about it. And I don't know if I want to be revisiting that kind of writing style right now or not. But again, the grief angle may be more of an obstacle for me than it would be for other readers. Let's keep going. Maybe we will actually still meet someone yet before this chapter ends. Soldiers stood ground with machine guns. Okay, well, there's someone. When they were not making the rounds, young, bored, lonesome men from various corners of the world who had known little about the island and its complex history until they found themselves posted to this unfamiliar environment. Walls were plastered with official signs in bold colors and capital letters. No entry beyond this point. Keep away, restricted area. No photographs, no filming allowed. Then, further along the barricade, an illicit addition in chalk scribbled on a barrel by a passerby. Welcome to no man's land. The partition that tore through Cyprus from one end to the other a buffer zone patrolled by United Nations troops was about 110 miles long and as wide as four miles in places where merely a few yards and others. It traversed all kinds of landscapes, abandoned villages, coastal hinterlands, wetlands, fallowlands, pine forests, fertile plains, copper mines, and archaeological sites, meandering in its course like the ghost of some ancient river. But it was here, across and around the capital, that it became more visible, tangible, and thus haunting. Nicosia, the only divided capital in the world. 
It sounded almost a positive thing when described that way. Something special about it, if not unique, a sense of defying gravity, like the single grain of sand moving skywards in an hourglass just upended. But in reality, Nicosia was no exception. One more name added to the list of segregated places and separated communities, those consigned to history and those yet to come. At this moment, though, it stood as a peculiar, peculiarity. The last divided city in Europe. My hometown. I think I'm going to keep reading and share my thoughts because the chapter is nearly done. We'll just keep going and then I will share some thoughts. There are many things that a border, even one as clear cut and well guarded as this, cannot prevent from crossing. The Atesian wind, for instance, the softly named but surprisingly strong Meltemi or Meltem, the butterflies, grasshoppers and lizards, the snails, too, painfully slow though they are. Occasionally, a birthday balloon that escapes a child's grip, drifts in the sky, strays into the other side. Enemy territory. Then the birds. Blue herons, black-headed buntings, honey buzzards, yellow wagtails, willow warblers, masked shrikes, and, my favorite, golden orioles. All the way from the northern hemisphere, migrating mostly during the night, darkness gathering at the tips of their wings and etching red circles around their eyes, they stop here midway in their long journey before continuing to Africa. The island for them is a resting place, a lacuna in the tail, an in-betweenness. There is a hill in Nicosia where birds of all plumages come to forage and feed. It is thick with overgrown brambles, stinging nettles, and clumps of heather. In the midst of this dense vegetation is an old well with a pulley that creaks at the slightest tug and a metal bucket tied to a rope, frayed and al algae-covered from disuse. Deep inside it is always pitch black and freezing cold. Even in the fierce midday sun beating down directly overhead, the well is a hungry mouth awaiting its next meal. It eats up every ray of light, every trace of heat, holding each moat in its elongated stone throat. If you ever find yourself in the area, and if, led by curiosity or instinct, you lean over the edge and peer down, waiting for your eyes to adjust, you may catch a glint below, like the fleeting gleam from the scales of a fish before it disappears back into the water. Do not let that deceive you, though. There are no fish down there, no snakes, no scorpions, no spiders dangling from silken threads. The glint does not come from a living thing, but from an antique pocket watch. Eighteen karat gold encased with mother of pearl, engraved with lines from a poem. Arriving there is what you are destined for, but do not hurry the journey at all. And there on the back are two letters, or more precisely, the same letter written twice. Why and why. The well is 34 feet deep and 4 feet wide. 
It is constructed of a gently curved ashlar stone descending in identical horizontal courses all the way down to the mute and musty waters below. Trapped at the bottom are two men, the owners of a popular tavern. Both of slender build and medium height with large jutting ears with which they used to joke about. Both born and bred on this island and in their 40s when they were kidnapped, beaten, and murdered. They have been thrown into the shaft after being chained first to each other, then to a three-liter olive oil tin filled with concrete to ensure they will never surface again. The pocket watch that one of them wore on the day of their abduction has stopped at exactly eight minutes to midnight. Time is a songbird, and just like any other songbird, it can be taken captive. It can be held prisoner, prisoner in a cage and for even longer than you might think possible. But time cannot be kept in check in perpetuity. Perpetuity. No captivity is forever. Someday the water will rust away the metal and the chains will snap, and the concrete's rigid heart will soften, as even the most rigid hearts tend to do with the passing of the years. Only then will the two corpses, finally free, swim towards the chink of sky overhead, swimming in the refracted sunlight. They will ascend towards the blissful blue, at first slowly, then fast and frantic like pearl divers gasping for air. Sooner or later, the sole dilapidated well on that lonely, beautiful island at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea will collapse in on itself, and its secret will rise to the surface, as every secret is bound to do in the end. All right. <clears throat> well, there is a children's song that this chapter reminds me a little bit where it's, um, there's a hole in the ground and then there's a rabbit around the hole and then there's the bush around the rabbit in the hole and then there, it, it builds and builds and builds and builds. Constantly adding and adding and adding. And I felt like this was almost that approach where we start with the grandiose setting and we start seeing more detail and we move in and we move in and we move in and we move in um, until we are in the bottom of this well. And it's a very unique approach. And I, I feel like that is one way to go. I guess what I don't appreciate in this chapter is the jarring exposition of philosophy with the visual detail. I mean, we get into this paragraph of being in the well and those corpses and, their and the pocket watch that had stopped. But we keep going. And that I I don't I don't understand. I mean, there was such a power with this when, when you talked about the pocket watch in the well, and then you talk about these corpses and the pocket watch that one of them wore on the day of their abduction has stopped at exactly eight minutes to midnight. End the chapter there. Just done. Stop it. Nope. We're gonna keep talking about philosophical time is a songbird. Time is not to be captured time is going to take away it oh, that's when it starts sounding like you just want to hear yourself talk 
And I'm sure plenty of people are going to disagree with me and go, how can you say that about this prose? Because that's how I tend to sound in my own head when I'm criticizing something. Um, there has to be a balance. There's got to be a balance between the beatific prose and story. And it's already a very tough sell with this first chapter because we don't really have much in the way of a happening. We are just establishing scene, establishing, 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 establishing. And just focus on that establishment because there's already so much that can be said, can be interpreted from these setting details. We don't have to have a bunch more of metaphor and pontification about something you've already been covering from the get-go regarding time. So I, I, I am not a fan of that. But again, this, this uh, writer, Leif Shafik, I mean, he clearly understands how, what they're doing with their prose, and I am not going to question that. I just question the approach here of balance between philosophical ponderings and actual story. And maybe it is because I want a story, and I don't feel like I was getting the start of one yet. I guess that's my approach. It's a part of Reese's Book Club, so apparently a lot of people still like it. And UK librarians think it's a great uplifting book. So if you want to still give it a go, go for it. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I, for one, took my sip. Not that big of a fan. I'm going to keep going because apparently I don't like things other people like, <laughs> I guess. Oh, well. We'll see what's on the new release shelf next week, shall we? Until then... Read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers.